WHMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. All the buttons have been pushed, and here we are. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm wondering, Dan Torres is with us, of course, running the board. And I'm wondering, Dan, if you might play some walk-up music for our first guest. Can we do that? Is that possible? And our first guest is indeed Josh Silver. This is Political Gold with Josh Silver. I'm glad we're starting with a little bit of fun because I have a very serious topic I want to discuss, and we want to discuss with you. Josh Silver, of course, is political consultant, political expert, and he is with us on a regular basis because, and, well, here it is, Josh. I was watching the news hour last night, and there was a Republican uh, uh, on, a former governor, the former governor of Maryland, I believe, talking about the No Labels Party and how it was a real possibility that the No Labels Party would be on the ballot in many states and would be running a presidential and vice presidential candidate, which would have the effect, I think, as a practical matter, of electing the Republican. Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, maybe someone else, But it is a frightening thought because third-party candidacies, in fact, as we know, have had exceedingly, beyond their numbers, influence because of the Electoral College. And I'm wondering whether this no-labels party, which has gotten some publicity over the past few years, is about to become a really prominent player in this presidential election. Help me understand that. Uh, And if you could break it to me easy because it's, you know, we're still... Uh, early in this game, but boy, sure. it's it's a frightening it's a frightening development. I think. First of all, uh, I'm going to urge Buzz and Bill don't quit your day job on this comedic front. And Dan, who's running the board, is is complicit. You're wild, wildly anything complicit. for you, Josh. I yeah. thought high hose anything anything for you. Josh. I want to apologize to listeners at home. <laughs> uh, but but uh, first of all, yes, it's code red in the Democratic Party because of this no labels thing. We're talking about so far they've already raised some over $70 million to put a so-called no-labels party uh, candidate on the ballot for the presidential in, um, in all 50 states. And this is a very audacious effort run by an organization that has a premise that says, look, roughly half of the American people are registered independents at this point. Uh, only about a quarter, roughly, are Republican, quarter Democrat. The country wants a third par- uh, third choice, and so we need to put a candidate on who straddles the middle, who's a centrist, who uh, is kind of part Democrat, part Republican. There are so many things wrong with this premise, and we're going to unpack them here. But I will say the metaphor you can all think about is like if you're building a house... You have to have a foundation made of concrete and steel upon which you build a house. And trying to run a third party in the United States under the current election law is like saying, screw it, I don't feel like, and I'm not going to spend the time building the foundation, which in this case would be changing how elections work. So you have things like ranked choice voting and open primaries in every state, which actually enables third parties to run without 
the so-called spoiler effect, when if you're voting for that candidate, you're taking votes away from another, because the elephant in the room, literally the elephant that was, in the room, that, that was bad. Is but that was the fact good. That if this moves forward, and the theoretical would be that no labels is going to run, run Senator uh, Joe Manchin, the corporate centrist from West Virginia, Democrat, and former governor or, or John Huntsman from uh, is it Utah? I'm forgetting. He uh, is a centrist Republican uh, running them for president, and that that will solve this because people will will vote for these guys because they're sick of the Democrats and the Republicans. So here we go. Here's what's wrong with it. Number one, there is no such thing as a half of Americans who are aching centrists who desperately want a corporate sellout like Joe Manchin as their president. They are, they are comprised of this very, very diverse block of voters from the far left to the far right and everyone in between. And they are not this sort of unified group. A, a poll just uh, just out last week shows that um, uh, Manmouth polling showed that a Manchin Huntsman alternative ticket, uh, only 2% of likely voters in the United States would definitely vote for this specific third party. Yeah, election. but that's enough to swing the election. Well, of course. And 14, but at first I'm just completely destroying this whole, this whole idea. Okay. And just 14% would probably vote for them. So that's 16 probable. 44% would definitely not vote for them. And 31% probably would not. So you got 75% of voters who would either definitely or probably not. So all this does then is threaten either the Republican or the Democrat. And the problem is it's a 100% likely to make Trump win the, the election in November 2024 because the non-Trump voting base is, is far more sort of stratified and diverse and much more prone to votes being pulled away, whereas the, the Trump vote is very hardcore Trump and nobody else. And the last thing I'll say, no labels has promised that if Trump loses the Republican nomination, they will pull this ticket and kill this whole idea. But everybody knows that with Trump leading between 30 and 45 points above DeSantis, it is really impossible to fathom Trump losing this nomination at this point. Well, I'm not sure which road to go down, but let's stick on to this one for a moment. It seems to me that one aspect of our current political process and the chattering class that makes a living talking about it is that none of this really matters in some ways at this point. It's too real. And I know there's polling, but a lot can happen. There's not going to be a primary until next January. We're talking a half a year, which is an eternity in politics. So this idea that it will be Trump, and if it's not Trump, it's going to be DeSantis, I think is making a huge leap of faith about what polling means at this point. So help me understand that, and then I want to go back yeah. to no I mean, well, So first of all, and just so people don't get confused, like you know, just to be clear, when we talk about third-party runs, they are going to disrupt the general election. It won't have any effect on the primary. And I know you're not you're not saying it will, but just to be clear, the primary, how the the Democrat and Republican primaries shake out is not going to affect whether or not no labels is on the ballot. And remember that if no labels, let's say they get qualified for the ballot in 10 states, but not 50, because it really costs a lot of money. And interestingly, the 
ballot qualification process to get on the ballot as a presidential candidate is extremely expensive. And the way the law works, in many states, you have this very short window in which to gather hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of signatures in order to find a place on the ballot. And that's because they're not, they weren't on the ballot in the last election, yeah. so there's no state law presumption that they're on the ballot this time. They have to start from scratch. So we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars in cost, and it's, it's, it's questionable whether or not they're even going to be able to succeed in having their candidates on the ballot in all 50 states. So if that's the case, then you also run the risk here, just, and I will answer your question, but you run the risk that then you'll have Manchin Huntsman on the ballot in 20 states. And, oh, look, they happen to be include most of the swing states. And even though they have physically no chance of winning, their names because of election law will still be on the ballot and they will pull enough votes from the Democrat that they- This is Dan, on that question, is it nobody gets to 270 and then it gets kicked back to the House? Is that how you foresee no, this no, ending? It, it means that the Republican will end up winning the general election Just, in a bunch of like in, in 10 key swing states that they would have otherwise lost if the no labels candidates were not on the ballot. Because frankly, they're not going to win any states. You, basically. Could, you could put Harry and Maude on the ballot line and, and they'll get one or two points in just about every state. Like these are dead people. They're not going to win any states, really. It's still going to be Trump and Biden yeah, winning and, the states. But to answer your question, Bill, sure, Trump could lose. But honestly, this whole indictment thing that's just going to keep rolling has already shown itself with the first indictment that it only increases his support amongst Republican voters. I mean, I think 83% of, of Trump voters uh, view him favorably still. I mean, so I just don't see how do you how do you close a gap like that? There's no sort of Republican waiting in the wing that everyone's like, well, if so-and-so ran, that would really change this. There's nobody. That was DeSantis, and he's down by 44 points in a lot of polls. So I don't think there's a very – there's probably a 1% chance that Trump loses this nomination. But, Josh, Silver, in terms of no labels, absolutely wrong third party. Is it your position that no third party should ex- – I mean – we, so many of us hate the two-party system. Right. We don't feel like we really have a choice, even though we have a huge choice. But uh, we're looking for an alternative to the two parties. Do you sort of uh, have a position that uh, a progressive third party, because it will detract from Biden, is just a bad idea no matter how much we love its ideological premises? Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, Buzz, you have to change election law before you can have a third party, period. You have to build the foundation of the House, and that's why I just spent the last 12 years trying to do that. And we we managed to succeed in Alaska and Maine, where there is what's called top four or five open primaries plus ranked choice voting. It is the law in those states. It makes it so that there's a primary election. Everybody votes in the primary, right, on, together. And then the top four or five, depending on the law, of uh, vote getters, uh, regardless of party, all advance to the general and then you imagine you've got four candidates on the general election ballot, you rank them, and then the, the ranked choice voting process kicks in, and it makes it so that if your first choice doesn't win, your second choice could be applied to the remaining candidates, and you actually, voila, have a viable third-party system. That has to be the law in the majority of states before we can have third parties. And that requires patience. And frankly, there was a lot of momentum around this nationwide that I was part of the leadership of that. And then when Trump and the Republican Party turned against democracy itself in 2020, literally all of that momentum came to a screeching halt. 
there are still little glimmers of hope. Nevada passed a ballot initiative for ranked choice voting. They have to do it again next year. It's hit or miss whether or not they'll succeed. There's states like Colorado and others that are contemplating it, Missouri. But it's a, we lost at the ballot in ranked choice voting in Massachusetts a few years ago, narrowly. But like, you know, this is a, this is a failure of our founders. The founders did not envision a duopoly taking hold. And for the first 140 years of our country, it didn't. In the first 140 year, years, there was actually third parties that were successful. But for the last 100 years, it's been a duopoly lock. There's another solution, which is this national popular vote law, if enough states passed it, which would require states to vote, pass their cast their electoral votes for the candidate who won the most popular votes. What's your position? That's not going to work. So it's a good idea. I, I, I love it in principle. The, the idea is this. If you get more than half of the states and count it as if you add up all their electoral votes, it's more than 50% of the electoral college, which is required to, you know, sort of anoint the president. If you get more than 50% of the states to all form a compact with each other that says... Well, it's, it's the number of states whose votes at electoral votes add up to 270 plus. Yeah, anything over 270. We're going to allocate our electoral college votes to whichever presidential candidate gets the majority of votes nationwide. It's right. It's like a really simple notion. And what we've got here is it's close. We're within three states, four states, but there's two problems. One, we can't seem to get over. It was all progressive states that did it because those are ones that are like, yeah, let's count California and New York and all you know these really blue, very populous states. We like democracy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and populism, actually real populism works for us. The problem is purple states, red states reject it. And even if you get over that cusp, the few purple states that are in this mix, you're going to see repeals of their participation in the compact because there's enough conservative forces in those states to see the power of this, the transformational uh, potential. And frankly, the electoral, uh, the people behind this whole notion thought they would win five, 10 years ago, and it's just been stuck and it will continue to be. We are speaking with political consultant Josh Silver. We're going to continue this conversation on the likelihood, the likelihood of Donald Trump being president again. Is that really possible? We'll be right back. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Get takeout, save 30%. Get candles or hit the links, save 30%. Dog grooming, outdoor recreation, burritos, save 30%. The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were gonna buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, open right now at whmp.com. What do you take to the beach? A book. Go to Broadside, get a beach read. Like Happy Place by Emily Henry, Romantic Comedy by Curtis Sittenfeld. Have you read Lessons in Chemistry? Read it by the water. Broadside Bookshop Summer Reads for the beach or a lazy afternoon in an Adirondack. Stacey Abrams' new thriller is Rogue Justice, and you won't be able to put it down, except maybe for a quick dip to cool off. Broadside, Northampton's community bookstore. Order any book on the Broadside website. Have it delivered to your door or pick up at the store. 
What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Ah, summer in New England, and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries, basil, and tomatoes, an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats, sausage, lots of grilling ideas. And in the co-op cheese department, get fresh mozzarella for your caprese salad. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Our beloved local hero farms. Way too much rain, wiping out crops, wiping out entire farms. Our local hero farms matter too much to let them go down. We're all together on a rescue mission. Go to the Help Flooded Farms page at the CESA Local Hero website. Support a specific farm or donate to CESA's Emergency Farm Fund. Local Hero Farms. Think what life would be like without them. Go to the CESA website, buylocalfood.org, to the Help Flooded Farms page, and kick in what you can. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with political consultant Josh Silver. We've been talking about the No Labels Party and whether there will actually be a candidacy from the No Labels Party, uh, something that causing me a lot of anxiety. You, call, you said, Josh, this is code red for Democrats. Let's get back to the likelihood that, in fact, No Labels with a uh, ticket of uh, Joe Manchin and maybe uh, John Huntsman, uh, Joe Lieberman, of course, being a big enthusiast for all of this. Um, whether the odds of that happening are, well, in, what are the odds of that happening in your judgment? Currently, it's quite high. Um, I, I'd go 50-50. Uh, the people, Nancy Jacobson, the woman who runs No Labels, and the, the donors behind them who are very deep-pocketed, many of them former like Reagan Republican types, nostalgic Republicans or corporate Democrats, are excited about this notion. They downplay the perceived risk. When we were off the air, we were just chatting here in the studio about the fact that a recent poll shows that a, a no labels run could potentially pull roughly equal amounts of votes from Trump and Biden in a theoretical matchup. I don't buy that. I think uh, based on what we're seeing amongst Democratic elites and operative class, there it's just absolute code red. I think there's something else at play here, which is that if the candidates are somewhat younger, those who are scared or reluctant to vote for Biden uh, because of his age will say, well, you know, those guys look pretty competent, not exactly what I want, but um, I'd feel more comfortable with them. And so in a three-way choice, I'll go for these no-label guys. They're, they say they're moderates. They say they're in the middle. They say they represent everyone. Right. I'm tired right. of all the uh, political fighting back and forth from the extremes. So I think that would be another factor. Yeah. Well, particularly, and the reason you're right for, for once, Bill, is that, uh, <laughs> is that no, but the, the, the so-called swing voter, is it's a tiny percentage of the electorate, and they are a uni almost universally just like, very politically agnostic that just don't pay attention to politics. So you're correct. There's a real danger of that actual swing vote, which is like less than 5% of the electorate could actually go to the no labels. Now I'm looking at polls. Um, one from three days ago showing Trump up by five points. This is a Harvard university poll, uh, Trump up by five points nationally. nationally? 
up against uh, Biden. Um, DeSantis up by one point over Biden nationally. Uh, Dan had asked off the air, uh, what about Kamala Harris? Uh, Trump up by nine points against Kamala Harris. Uh, YouTube did a more recent, but I'm just giving you guys this. I know polls are silly and they often are wrong and they are especially wrong when they're this early, but it is notable like a Yahoo News news poll has Biden beating Trump by four points right now. But like, I honestly thought naively after the, 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 the big indictment, federal indictment of Trump, that we'd be looking at reliably between five and eight points plus Biden on virtually every poll right now. And we're not seeing that. So if you're worried about Trump winning in November of 2024, you should be. If no labels is in the game with a Joe Manchin or other candidates who are John Huntsman candidacy, you should be hair on fire. I would like a better understanding of this. The economy is actually pretty good. Inflation is down. Job numbers are terrific. Wages are rising. There has been a significant infrastructure bill passed. The United States has done, I think, a really commendable job uh, with regard to the war in Ukraine. Uh, Foreign policy has not lurched from crisis to crisis. And you look at all that this administration, all that it has accomplished, and you'd say, given that economy, the Democrats should be up by five or 10 points easy. This is spectacular news for the year before the election. And yet Biden's numbers are in the toilet for the most part. Why? 60% of Americans, uh, inflation's a big one, Bill, right? Like what is the cost of day-to-day things? They are higher than they were under Trump. And sadly, Humans are not nearly as sophisticated as we like to think we are. Like for most people, pocketbook issues are the biggest issue, honestly. And then second to that are are these sort of social issues that have a direct impact on us, like abortion. But 60% of Americans say the nation is on the wrong track. Uh, the same roughly 60% say that our economy is weak, Bill. And... Uh, the same amount says that Biden is mentally unfit for office. So what you're seeing is that this is standard narrative. We always come back to it, which is we are seeing the confluence of the broken democratic system, election system that actually fosters polarization. It incentivizes polarization through a a broken primary election process, a broken gerrymandering system. Uh, We're not going to get all into that right now, but it literally makes sure that the, the country polarizes at the same time that we have the rise of digital media over the last 15 years and the siloing of, of news groups where people get their information from Fox or right wing radio or MSNBC or the Bill Newman and, and Buzz Eisenberg show. And so you've got this bubbling or this sort of segmenting of audiences and you don't even hear the other side. The other side doesn't exist. So it really does why what Trump does doesn't matter. Like how many times he gets indicted doesn't matter because the people who support him only listen to the people who say that he is perfect under all circumstances. So there's nothing for Biden to do because the narrative that I just gave the bare bones to is factually accurate. The perception that Biden is a failure and that inflation is out of control, and that the economy is weak, that's factually wrong. 
Well, but, it's not, Bill. If you are somebody who you and your spouse are working really hard and still don't have enough money to buy the, the, many of the things of life or send your kid to college and or the quality of the schools that your kids go to, they can't afford a sports program. These are real things that real people experience. Can, may, this is Dan. May I add that it's less about the numbers, Bill, and I think it's more about a feeling. And we're run by feelings and emotions more than than statistics and numbers. Even though I think you're right, the numbers do show that Biden, if we remember, Biden took over, he was getting vaccines into people's arms because we weren't, the economy wasn't reopened. But it's still a general sense that things aren't normal, things are out of reach, things are way too expensive across the board. And so people kind of blame those who are in power. And it just makes, it goes to Josh's point that those of us who are progressives and actually read the newspaper and really think about things, uh, understand that Biden, he, he's been uh, a much more effective uh, leader than I expected him to be. I've been very pleased with the Biden administration in many ways. Um, well, well, that's because he actually has been more progressive than he ever was as a senator in his entire career. Right. And, and I think there are people who argue correctly that history will show that Joe Biden was much more of an FDR figure in terms of the ambitiousness of his efforts to make government actually work. Um, and even more so if you count his aspirations that Congress wouldn't pass. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I agree. And I, I, I think he's surpassed expectations. I was not a Joe Biden fan going into the election, and I think he's done well. One in six Americans are poor, so there's that. One in 10 Americans live in communities that have persistent poverty that doesn't improve. Um, and people are working more, as as Dan said, we're, people are working more and making less. So Yeah, but let me interrupt all you guys. You could have had the exact same conversation uh, when, when Trump was president or when anyone was president. Why is it that Biden, who has in fact done a good job by almost every metric that is traditional, can't tell this story? Well, I guess we could, this is, we could probably close on this since we're hitting time. But the fact is, is we are seeing, and, and you guys know, I'm not a huge, I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a huge, like, I love Democrats guy. In fact, I've been trying to upend the two-party system my whole career. But the fact is, is that Republicans have been running so-called trickle-down economics for the last 30, 40 years, giving huge tax breaks to the rich. and With the greatest wealth the gap in this country's history, in the world's history. And they run administrations that decimate the economy, but most of the effects, the negative effects, don't occur until the Democrat has taken office after the Republican leaves the White House. And Americans just see what's in front of them. And they see how, you know, the first part of Biden's administration, things were tough. There was a pandemic. The economy was tanking. Inflation was out of control. And they just see, oh, there's that old doddering guy in the White House. It's his fault when they don't understand that the results of economics are delayed. It's a sophisticated topic. It's a big machine. And so this will continue to happen. A Republican will win the White House again. They will decimate the, the economy. A Democrat will fix it, but be blamed anyway. And the cycle continues. So just to circle back, Bill, uh, I think that let's go back to no labels. Uh, any listener who thinks it's a good idea to have an alternative to the Democratic and Republican regimes and thinks that no labels premise as articulated is a good one, forget it. 
It's awful. It's a nightmare. Build the foundation first. Work on ranked choice voting and open primaries for a decade or two, and then you can you can revisit. On that happy note, we're going to take a break, and we're going to come back. We'll be speaking with Michael Clare. He is the defense correspondent for The Nation magazine and Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies. We're going to find out what the status is of the war in Ukraine right after this. I'm high on believing that you're in love with me. Lips as sweet as candy. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Police are investigating following a multi-vehicle crash in I-91 South near the Springfield and Longmeadow town line yesterday. Massachusetts State Police say a Dodge Ram driven by a 53-year-old man from Winstead, Connecticut, was traveling on the exit one off-ramp in Longmeadow when it went over the guardrail and crashed down into a wooded area below, trapping the driver inside the vehicle. A Chevy Impala driven by a 68-year-old man from Granby and a BMW driven by a 74-year-old man from Glastonbury, Connecticut, were also involved in the crash. Erica Faginski-Stark, who withdrew her application for superintendent of East Hampton Schools earlier this year due to allegations of transphobic comments on social media, is speaking out. Faginski-Stark spoke with Mass Live, saying she didn't expect comments she made two years ago on Facebook would affect contract negotiations. Faginski-Stark denies the comments were transphobic in any way, saying the criticism didn't really focus on what her words or intentions relative to the posts were. Faginski-Stark also lost out on a position at Hampshire Regional after student protests. More relief is coming for farmers. State and federal government officials were in Western Mass again yesterday to continue discussions on recovery efforts for all of the recent flooding in the area. Senate President Karen Spilka visited Hatfield along with local officials to announce flood assistance for farmers regarding the recent flooding that has been happening. The town has been immensely affected by this month's rainy weather and saw another inch and a half of rain over the weekend. They say the Senate will assist by adding $20 million to the supplemental budget to be dispersed to farms impacted by the storm. This assistance will be approved later this week. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. La Corte Suprema de Estados Unidos tendría que cumplir con estándares de ética más estrictos según la legislación aprobada el jueves por el Comité Judicial del Senado, en respuesta a las recientes revelaciones sobre viajes de jueces financiados por donantes. El proyecto de ley enfrentó la oposición unida de los republicanos, quienes dijeron que podría destruir la Corte. El panel votó según las líneas partidarias para establecer reglas de ética para la Corte y un proceso para hacerlas cumplir, incluidos nuevos estándares de transparencia en torno a recusaciones, obsequios y posibles conflictos de intereses. Los demócratas impulsaron la legislación por primera vez después de los informes a principios de este año de que el juez Clarence Thomas participó en vacaciones de lujo y en un acuerdo inmobiliario con un importante donante republicano, y después de que el presidente del Tribunal Supremo John Roberts se negara a testificar ante el Comité sobre la Ética de la Corte. Desde entonces, los informes noticiosos también revelaron que el juez Samuel Alito se 
había tomado unas vacaciones de lujo con un donante republicano. Y la prensa asociada informó la semana pasada que la jueza Sonia Sotomayor, con la ayuda de su personal, ha adelantado las ventas de sus libros a través de visitas a universidades durante la última década. El presidente del Comité Judicial del Senado, Dick Durbin, dijo que la legislación sería un primer paso crucial para restaurar la confianza en la Corte. Dijo que si alguno de los senadores sentados en la sala se hubiera involucrado en actividades similares, estaría violando las reglas de ética. La legislación de ética tiene pocas posibilidades de ser aprobada en el Senado o en la Cámara de Representantes controlada por los republicanos, pero los demócratas dicen que la avalancha de revelaciones significa que son necesarios estándares exigibles en la Corte. Yo soy Johan Rashivega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Hollywood Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We welcome back to our show Michael Clare, Professor Michael Clare, Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College, defense correspondent, longtime defense correspondent for The Nation magazine, prolific author, expert on this topic. Well, Michael Clare, I want to talk to you and get your overview with regard to the war in Ukraine. But first, a couple of specifics that have been in the news very much recently, and that is the question of the world's food supply, the potential for Russia to cut off grain being transported from Ukraine, which I see as a potentially potentially disastrous, uh, uh, having a potentially disastrous effect on the world's food supply. What, what is your view of that? Uh, no, first of all, you know, how could I not say it's a tragedy for the world? It's, 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 it's yet again, Putin uh, attacking people when he's losing on the battlefield itself, turning the war as a war against people by attacking food supplies and preventing the export of food. But I think there, I think he has a, a a hidden motive here, and that is to try to turn the global South uh, against NATO and the and the West, and to try to get a peace settlement on terms that are more favorable to Russia than they are to Ukraine. I think Putin understands that he's not going to prevail in Ukraine that the best he could hope for is some kind of peace agreement that leaves him with control of a fifth of the territory of Ukraine, what he's, what he's conquered so far. And, and he needs uh, pressure, he needs support and pressure from outside uh, of the West to achieve that. And I, I think he hopes that, that this will, uh, the, the, the food disaster in the global South will lead leaders in the global south to put pressure on Ukraine and NATO and the US to stop the war on more favorable terms. There's a meeting coming up now of the so-called BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, uh, Russia and China in South Africa, and you're going to hear a lot of this. And the pressure is going to be put on Ukraine to fold, not on Putin to stop? It'll it'll be you know voiced as being even, but but the 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 implication will be that that the West is prolonging the war, 
and and that it, it, it the sooner that the West stops supplying NATO with weapons and and uh, Ukraine stops fighting, the sooner Russia will will open the floodgates of food supplies. While we're talking about moral issues, one of the sharp criticisms of Biden recently has been his providing to Ukraine these cluster bombs that are essentially landmines being set uh, over wide swaths of the country. Could you give us your perspective with regard to that? Well, I could tell you why they're why the Biden administration agreed to it. I, I've, I'm absolutely opposed to this. Uh, I, I was, as a young person, campaigned to, uh, for, for the adoption of a, of a landmine ban, an international ban on the use of these devices. And many, many of my colleagues in the peace movement and the uh, anti-weapons movement worked very hard to achieve that international ban. So I think it's a disgrace that the United States is violating a ban that's been supported by over 100 countries, including all of our NATO allies, because of the risk that these weapons will harm civilians, especially children, when they go into the fields uh, to, to play or, or for uh, agriculture and step on these things and they blow up and, and kill people or, or sever limbs and the like. So I, I think it's despicable. But the argument being made is that that uh, Ukraine is running out of ammunition, artillery ammunition, and this is all that they have in their stockpiles. Is that true? Hard for me to know, but uh, I, I believe it's possible because nobody anticipated that at, at this stage in the 21st century, a hundred years after World War One that we were going to be fighting artillery wars where you needed thousands of rounds of basic artillery ammunition and huge quantities. Nobody in all of their thinking about future war predicted that. So uh, I, I believe that there aren't huge supplies of conventional ammunition lying around. Well, th that will make it a bit equivocal, Michael. Um, I mean, you're saying on one hand, these are horrifying weapons and they are really an amoral, immoral choice of war, of, of, of how to conduct a war. On the other hand, there is an argument that you can't leave Ukraine without, uh, with, without shells that they need to fight the war. So at the end of the day, do you have any uh, appreciation for the conundrum that Biden, who said, he himself said, I hate these weapons, for his position? Oh, I, I think there are alternatives. Uh, I, I don't think they had to provide Ukraine with outlawed weapons. That's my personal belief. There, there would have to be other ways of, of fighting this war. A, a war I believe in the moral righteousness of Ukraine's defense of its sovereign territory against an invader. But I think uh, by using weapons that have been outlawed by international law, that sullies that, that moral righteousness. Michael Clare, you've told us for a long time that the war will be decided 
uh, on the battlefield, and that will dictate the terms of the eventual peace agreement. What is the status today of the much-ballyhooed counteroffensive by Ukraine, which does not seem to be recapturing any large amount of territory? Help us understand where the war stands. Well, the war stands not where it was expected to be by many pundits a few months ago. The talk was that uh, Ukraine would be had been equipped with uh, modern Western weaponry, and it was uh, the kind of weaponry that would allow for rapid offensive attacks into Russian-held territory. You know, the kind you see in the movies where tanks make rapid assaults. That has not happened, and it hasn't happened because uh, while the Russians uh, were ineffective at offensive operations, uh, they, they were repeatedly stopped by the Ukrainians, they've turned out to be very effective at defensive operations by setting tank, building tank traps and defensive trenches and the like. And this has slowed down the Ukrainian offensive and made it very difficult for Ukrainians to make advances without without losing lots of troops. Uh, and it's very painful for them. They, they, they have much fewer troops than the Russians have to call on. So losing a lot of personnel on the battlefield is is very is is very painful for them and difficult so uh the the offensive has been slowed down by effective russian defenses and until those are overcome uh, they're not going to make much progress at the current rate two questions about that one why can't ukraine uh bomb those positions and take out those anti-tank uh, defensive uh, fortress, well, th- those those obstacles that have been constructed by Russia. And the second is related, which is this is a huge uh, line of defense by Russia. Isn't it possible for Ukraine to go around it in some way? Uh, well, to answer the second question, the the line abuts Belarus on one side, and the Black Sea on the other side. So uh, there there isn't a way to go around. It has to go through. And uh, the the reason they're having difficulty is because they don't have an air force. Now, if, if this were the U.S., it would be very different. The U.S. would have air superiority, no doubt and would be able to bomb the hell out of uh, Russian defenses. But Ukraine doesn't have an air force to speak of, and therefore those troops are very exposed. Uh, They don't have air cover, and the Russian troops do. So uh, the, the Ukrainians have a significant disadvantage, which is why they're pleading for American planes, F-16 planes, and and their uh, European equivalents. But those don't exist in huge numbers, and even if 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 they get supplied with some of them, it's going to be a while before they arrive. They're not going to be in huge numbers. So for the present, Ukraine is fighting without an air force. Is the essentially the answer to your question? All right, I appreciate that information and that insight. What happens next with this war? Well, here's my sense, Bill. I, my sense is that it's going to grind on for a while. 
And uh, I, I do think that Ukraine will make more headway and then eventually it will it will just run out of the capacity to go any further. And then there's going to be a lot of pressure put on all of the parties involved, Ukraine and Russia, to reach some kind of accommodation wherever that line is when that point is reached, which I would imagine is, is when we approach winter. Because I, do, I, I personally don't see how Ukraine can continue to do this in the future. Uh, and I don't think Russia has a capacity to go on the offensive again. So I, I, think, I think there'll be a point where both sides, uh, neither side could make any further progress fighting. And then, and then they'll start negotiating. And I think that countries like China and Turkey and India will step in and try to get the two parties to agree to some kind of accommodation. We're speaking with Michael Clare, defense correspondent for The Nation magazine, Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College. We'll continue our conversation right after this. The hunger I felt, and I didn't have to call it loneliness. We all have a hunger. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank with offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin counties. Greenfieldsavings.com. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. The Literacy Project is the place to go if you are an adult hoping to improve your reading, writing, and math skills, or if you want help preparing for the high school equivalency exam. The Literacy Project offers free classes at five locations in Franklin and Hampshire counties. We also offer classes to help you prepare for college and to help you plan for a career. If you want to learn, the Literacy Project is the place for you. To find out about Literacy Project classes in Northampton, call 413-584-6755. To find out about our classes in Greenfield, Orange, Amherst, and Ware, check us out online at literacyproject.org. The Literacy Project is the place to go if you want support furthering your education and accomplishing career goals. If you want to learn, the Literacy Project is the place for you. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. 
We continue our conversation with Michael Clare, Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College, longtime defense correspondent, defense correspondent for The Nation magazine. We've been talking about Ukraine, the war, the progress or lack thereof, and the future of that war. We were talking during the break. We continued our conversation, and the issue of the use of drones was front and center. Tell us about that, if you would, please. Michael Clare? Yes. This is one of the most dramatic uh, innovations of this war is the widespread use of drones of different kinds by both sides. Their their widespread use of aerial drones uh, called unmanned aerial vehicles or UAVs by both sides to collect intelligence and for attack. Uh, We had this uh, reported attack on Moscow yesterday by Ukrainian drones that came very close to the Russian uh, military headquarters. I don't think they did much damage, but they were a signal that Moscow itself is vulnerable to, to attack by by these armed drones. Uh, drones are also used over the, the battlefield itself uh, to collect intelligence on enemy positions and kamikaze, so-called kamikaze drones or loitering munitions that hover over the battlefield until they spy a target and and attack it directly using artificial intelligence, bringing artificial intelligence into the equation. And this is the thing, kind of thing that militaries uh, like the US and China are studying very closely for use on future battlefields. Can you s- stay with the topic of what is happening in Moscow and what is happening with Putin? and whether or not he has been weakened by the war, whether his uh, grasp on power has has become more tenuous, particularly in light of the very short-lived rebellion against his army? So he, his fate has now become intertwined with the fate of the war. This is This is Putin's war. He launched the war making promises that this was going to be a short uh, special military operation, as he calls it, that it would be glorious, that it would uh, bring uh, uh, bring Russia, expand Russia's territory and bring the recalcitrant uh, Ukrainians back into the fold. And it has not succeeded the way he envisioned it. So now his fate is hinges on this. And if the war goes badly, uh, he's going to be in deep trouble. So this is a factor in ending the war. He has no incentive right now to to end it, which is the, the, the tragedy, and only to only to escalate the war, as he has done this week with the attacks on Odessa and food supplies. Uh, I, I think the Prigozhin rebellion showed that there are elements within the elites in Russia that are sick of this and wish to see an end to it, but those elements are invisible to those of us outside the country, probably even for most people within the country. But it's clear that that such, uh, such currents exist within Russia and that he's skating uh, uh, on thin ice. That's that's the way I see it. So, but the tragedy is he he 
he sees that he has to prosecute the war in order to keep himself in power, which is why I think any outcome to end the war is going to have to involve some kind of incentives for him to 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 quit. Um, incentives of, of an economic nature, like lifting sanctions and and uh, aid from China, whatever that's gonna, whatever that will involve. But he he's his fate now rests on the fate of the battlefield. We just have a half minute left. Will China pressure Putin to end this war? See, that's what I think is that will will be the one thing that could change the dynamic. I think that China understands that this has been a catastrophe for Russia, but also for China, because it's it's uh, mired China in a division, a global division, and because China is seen as supporting Russia, it's it's turned Europe against China and. And China's in desperate economic straits, not desperate, but it's it's not growing. So China has a vested interest in getting Putin to end the war. We're going to leave it there. We've been speaking with Michael Clare, defense correspondent for The Nation magazine, professor emeritus of peace and world security studies at Hampshire College, who has been with us since before the war began. And we really appreciate your time and your insights and your expertise. Michael Clare, thanks so very much. My pleasure. Well, I rung me fallout shelter bell and I lean my head and I give a yell. Give me a string bean. I'm a- Find local news and local talk for the Valley. Which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money. Which is true, but as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive, that are racist. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. Northampton Neighbors is free of charge and open to all with a range of social and volunteer opportunities as well as services and support for members 55 and older in the city of Northampton. Need help? Want to help? Join us as a member, a volunteer, or donor. Northampton Neighbors is about more than aging in place. We're about engaging in place, this place. Find us online at northamptonneighbors.org or call us at 413-341-0160. WHMP North... going to come. This is Talk the Talk with Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And with our uh, just uh, delightful uh, guest who comes on monthly um, and talks about uh, what the world looks like at the intersection of sports and social justice. He's a member of Sabre, the Society for American Baseball Research, and he taught a course recently about 
sports and social justice. Hello, Duke Goldman. Hey there, Buzz. How are you? I'm great. And it's always, I just can't wait to sit in the studio with you and hear your analysis, not just about sports, but about uh, sports and society in general. So what have you been up to these days? I've been pretty busy. I went to a national saber convention. This is our major annual convention in Chicago a couple weeks ago. Then I came home, and that's when I taught um, a course, a one-day course to two classes, high school students who are studying at UMass Sports Management, trying to figure out what they want to do for their futures on, I call it race, sports, and social justice. So I taught them a class and gave them a grounding in history, and we looked. Uh, some of some people might remember uh, that I we talked about uh, the Washington Commanders. So they, they the kids had to engage in a case. The Washington Commanders finally, Dan Snyder was forced almost at the point of a gun to sell that team, and so the kids were the students were figuring out what for, for how much money six billion dollars. Yeah, he go. got a golden parachute like nobody's business. That's really tough. Six billion dollars to leave to make them go away. Yeah, well, it's not not only that you're teaching yeah. young people who are looking what just be the grossest owner, most racist yes. person you can, and get rewarded amply. That is not the way our society works. Wonderful stuff. But the students were asked to do something that the Washington team is actually going to do. I asked them, should the Washington team, which has been the Redskins and then the uh, uh, Washington football team and now the Commanders, should they change their name again? Which most students said no. And then I read in the paper just the next day, they're thinking about it. They're thinking about changing it again. So I had the students engage with this. How does this team repair the damage? And that brings to mind the notion of how do we repair the damage in this society, this incredible damage that's been done to so many people, so many people who have been oppressed and still are being oppressed. But one other thing that I wanted to mention um, about this class, I teach some history of the 1900s before we get into what's going on today, and I ask the students questions, because, you know, we have to hear from them and find out where are they at. And I ask them, uh, because in addition to baseball, the three biggest sports in the first half of the 20th century in America were boxing and horse racing. So I mentioned Joe Lewis, and out of a class of 29 kids, not a single one of them had heard of Joe Lewis. All right, you know, Joe Lewis was a long time ago. Most of them had, or many of them had heard of Muhammad Ali, who was more current, you know, that's fine. But shortly thereafter, I asked them, how many of them had heard of Jackie Robinson? And the answer was about five or six out of 29. What did that tell me? It told me, here we have an icon of civil rights, a person who is one of the biggest change agents, not just in baseball, but in American history. Martin Luther King said that the civil rights movement would not have happened without Jackie Robinson. And here's a bunch of smart high school kids. And most of them have not heard of Jackie Robinson. So with that, I left and went to my Negro Leagues conference this is an annual conference that I go to with about 100 people who are historians of black baseball, where we get together and we celebrate this incredible entity that existed for 42 years, from 1920 to 1962. And we went to presentations and we had meetings. We talked about the Baseball Hall of Fame and what they're doing about black baseball. And I just tried to listen, and boy, some of the stuff I heard, it tells me what's going on behind the scenes. Like what? 
Well, for one thing, the Baseball Hall of Fame reverse engineers their voting processes. What am I talking about? Well, they really can't control the baseball writers. The Hall of Fame has changed their voting processes time and again. They have one process where the baseball writers vote in players who've been retired for five years. And if a player gets 75% of those votes, they've, they've messed around with that too because now the, the writers vote um, six people, I think. Oh, no, they vote for 10 years when they used to vote for 15 years. The players were on. So they're, they're even messing with that. But there, they can't do much about the, the writers are going to vote in who they think are the best players. But they also have these veterans committees. And these veterans committees consider people who were not considered previously. Well, the Baseball Hall of Fame has inducted, now I think it's about 37 um, uh, players and, and, and um, executives and pioneers of, the bla- of black baseball. Um, so they've created these veterans committees and they determine how, how many people are going to get in, in large part by deciding who's going to get to be in the final vote. So what they did most recently, they had a vote in 2022 in which they put in Buck O'Neill, a man who was, I met him in Kansas City at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, considered the ambassador of black baseball, um, who didn't get in in 2006 when they had 17 people from black baseball inducted into the Hall of Fame, and everybody thought that was an outrage. So the Hall of Fame wanted Buck O'Neill in, all right? And they wanted Minnie Mignoso, great Afro-Cuban star of the late 40s, 50s, and 60s, they wanted him to get in, apparently, also, especially because they have a big Latino audience. And they want people to come to the Hall of Fame, they want people to come to the induction ceremonies, and they want to sell merch, all right? What didn't they want? Well, they didn't really want a lot of other great black ballplayers of the past to get in. So what did they do, according to a member of of my Negro League committee, who also was in a preliminary vote. They had a preliminary vote. There were 10 black baseball ball players from the past who were on the preliminary vote. This guy voted for eight of them to get into the Hall of Fame. Several other people voted for two, Buck O'Neill and Minnie Mignosa, who also played in the Negro Leagues. He did not get into the final vote. The people who voted for two were on the final committee. So therefore, they engineered the process. They made sure that people got in that they wanted to get in. Sounds like Texas. Yeah, well, you know, we decide who gets to vote. Yeah, yeah. So Duke Goldman, what else did you uh, experience at this conference? It sounds really fascinating. Well, I experienced the city of Detroit, a city that's had hard times, a city that was bankrupt, I think, 10 or 11 years ago, a city that is trying to come back and has made inroads. It has the right African-American WRIGHT Historical Museum, which is one of the best museums that I've ever been to on black history. Uh, They have a great uh, historical museum. We had events at their opera house. We went to a stadium called Hamtramck Stadium. Hamtramck is a city inside of Detroit that had a black baseball stadium in 1930. And some of the people in my society have rebuilt the stadium. 
So we went to that stadium. We went to Tiger Stadium as well. And the Tigers were celebrating black baseball. So they had an event. And the daughters and granddaughter of Norman Turkey Stearns, who I think I mentioned a couple weeks ago, who is one of the greatest ball players of all time, not just black ball players, a man who finally got in the Hall of Fame some years ago. It was the 100th anniversary of his debut with the Detroit Stars. And his daughters, Roz and Joyce, um, were there and threw out the first pitch. And his granddaughter also participated in this conference. And we had some panels. We had Willie Horton, who is a great Tiger player of the 60s. Many credited him with helping to diffuse racial tensions in 67 and 68, where then there were major Detroit riots. He was at our convention. Ron Teasley was at our convention. Ron Teasley is one of four surviving players who played in the Negro Leagues that, in 2020, Major League Baseball declared to be major leagues. The last of those leagues played in 1948. Ron Teasley played in 48. The other three the most famous of which is Willie Mays. The third one is a guy named Bill Greeson who was at my conference last year who is 98, and the fourth is someone nobody's ever heard of. In fact, I can't remember his name. I hadn't heard of him until yesterday. So we celebrated these individuals, but these individuals need more attention. And we also had families of other people, families of a guy named Pete Hill, who almost anybody you ask wouldn't know, is in the Baseball Hall of Fame. He was inducted in 2006. Pete Hill played prior to the Negro Leagues. He played in the early 1900s. And when the Hall of Fame created a plaque for him, they put the wrong first name. They had to change the plaque. They normally won't change plaques because they called him Joseph when his real first name was John. I don't know. I don't know what to say. The, what I see is a lot of whitewashing. From your perspective as a longtime member of SABRE, the Society of American Baseball Research, as a baseball historian, as an author and an editor, what's your prescription if, for Major League Baseball? If you could say, MLB, I now have the power. Commissioner Duke Goldman, what would you do? MLB has to put their money where their mouth is. Take some of that, those billions of dollars they're making on streaming and merch, you know, that's lining those owners' pockets, and start spending it in the inner cities. Start supporting historically black colleges. Start bringing black people back. Now, to some degree, they missed their chance. One of the things I heard, I've discussed many times on air and otherwise, why did black people stop following baseball? What I heard at this conference that an African-American professor of, of, of African-American studies at Wayne State University said, in the 80s and 90s when hip-hop and rap culture took off, basketball embraced it, to a lesser degree football embraced, embraced it, and baseball went the other way and turned away. And that, she says, is part of the problem. You can't rectify that. That's over. You know, it's too late for that. Major League Baseball now plays loud music and, and current music, but they've lost a generation of fans. So I think, what do they have to do? They have to bring more players in, and they have to recognize black history. And they're not doing that. Yeah, you know, when I had my little dalliance with the uh, Major League Baseball as a bad boy for the Atlanta Braves, the clubhouse was filled with real conservative ideology, as many people in this country in the late 60s were fighting against the Vietnam War. We're talking about feminism. We're talking even Earth Day was about to be born. 
in recognition of our destruction of the planet, baseball players and those that followed them tend to be seeing the world through a very different lens. I, I think that's part of I, I don't know what it is about baseball, the game that I love. I love to play. I still love to watch. But for some reason, people like you who profess social justice and see this entertainment industry as a way to foment and promote social justice at the same time, there's a lot of people who, if they were able to articulate their views of the world, commentators, baseball observers, would be articulating a very different lens, through a very different lens than you do. So what say you to those who say, well, is there a place for talking about sports as a vehicle to promote social justice? I think there is. That I, I know there is. Here it is. Here are these players, another 20, 30 or so of black baseball, whose statistics are now easily found in baseballreference.com, who are phenomenal ball players, belong in the Hall of Fame, and they're not being recognized. Why is that? Why shouldn't baseball recognize their past? How do you repair the past? Do you acknowledge past sins? They're not doing that. I don't under, I do know baseball and the Hall of Fame, both Major League Baseball and the Hall of Fame, are deeply conservative institutions. They are good at playing the PR game and putting out a message that says we're doing something and then behind the scenes kind of doing a delay process. They need to be called out. And that's what my society is planning to do. We're going to orchestrate a pressure campaign on them to say, you guys need to do more. This is not enough. How about Major League Baseball promotes, say, from their richest owners, a $10 billion fund for reparations to make up from the past sins of organized baseball? I want to see that fund... Even if it's $1 billion, I don't know if they'll never do $10 billion, um, to be put towards the inner cities, towards, towards building and rebuilding black communities and creating programs that help subsidize black kids to play travel baseball because that's the way kids learn baseball these days. So they can, their families can afford to spend the something like, I hear it's ten, twelve thousand a year per kid to be able to play uh, travel baseball. That's, those are the things I want to see them do. I love your question, Bill, because originally baseball, you know, it, it was to promote our locality. We were so proud that those who supported the Red Stockings or the Knickerbockers, and, and they were proud of the region, that they, the city that they lived in, the region they came from. And the players were representative of that region before they started importing players and owners started taking that money, which used to be reserved for local restaurants. Yes, and that's what 19th century baseball was. Players, there were some imports, but most of the players were from localities. We don't live in that world anymore. That's not going to happen. But we need to go back to those localities and get people invested and involved. And one of the places to do that is to celebrate the roots of baseball in the ballparks, in the localities, and get people to realize and recognize and acknowledge the history. Speaking of which, I'd appreciate knowing more about this, Duke. Minor league baseball clubs have significant loyalty among the locations and in, in the cities and towns where they are. Is that still true? I mean, the Boston Red Sox have a 
a, a, a big uh, uh, AAA team with a lot of followers, the Woosocks and, and Worcester. Is, is that typical or is that, well, that atypical now for... It's a mix. Uh, on, on the day after the end of the conference, on Sunday, I went to see the Toledo Mud Hens, which is an hour away from Detroit, and they're the AAA facili- fa- uh, affiliate of the Detroit Tigers. And, and were made very famous on MASH because Yes, of that's right, right, because Max Klinger on MASH was a Toledo <laughs> Mud Hens fan. The stadium was about, I'm going to say, two-thirds full. Um, you know, the, one of the things Major League Baseball is talking about, they've already reduced the minor leagues. Some people say we should just eliminate the minor leagues, you know, support colleges and have our own academies. Again, short-sighted. What are they looking at? Well, we could save money, you know? Uh, minor League Baseball is ex- expensive. We're subsidizing it. What about the fact that that is where baseball is played in localities throughout the country and people who can afford those tickets because Major League tickets are ridiculously overpriced. The Pittsfields, the New Brennan, the Britain, New Britons, me, the yeah. uh, Pawtuckets. Yeah. We're talking to Duke Goldman. We're going to take a break. I love this conversation. It's an important conversation. We're going to talk about social justice in sports. More with Duke Goldman right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Ms. Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. Banking with Greenfield Savings Bank is more rewarding than ever with our free You Choose Rewards. You Choose is our debit cards reward program that rewards you every time you use your GSB Debit MasterCard. You Choose Rewards is free. And with You Choose Rewards, you'll earn points that can be redeemed for dining, shopping, traveling, cashback, donations, and more. Link your GSB Debit MasterCard with your mobile wallet, including Apple Pay, Google Pay, Samsung Pay, and PayPal. It's easy to start earning with You Choose Rewards. Just go to our website and sign up for You Choose Rewards for your GSB Debit MasterCard. It's free. All you need to do is sign up and you'll earn rewards every time you use your GSB Debit MasterCard. You Choose Rewards, the free debit card rewards program that earns you points every time you use your GSB Debit MasterCard. Sign up today at greenfieldsavings.com slash youchoose. Greenfield Savings Bank, member FDIC, member DIF. Pets and people, they belong together. They help us feel calm and loved with every tail wag, kiss, and snuggle. Dakin Humane Society believes in this bond, and your support keeps people and pets together. You provide resources so animals with medical issues can get the care they need to find homes. Our pet food aid program lets people facing tough times feed and keep their pets because you care. Dakin's many programs and services help companion animals and the people who love them. To make a gift, visit DakinHumane.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with baseball researcher and writer and commentator, 
Duke Goldman. Uh, we were talking about uh, sports and social justice. We we're talking about race. The problem of baseball not attracting enough new, fresh talent that is from African-American portions of the country. What do you see? What direction is that going in? How, what is the solution? So I try to talk to people wherever I go. And one of the things I miss in the Valley is that we don't have enough diversity. But in Detroit, I met so many people of color. So I would talk to them. And the guy at my local coffee shop in Detroit was a 60-year-old guy named Glenn, really cool guy. And um, I told him I'd been attending the Negro Leagues Conference, and he started talking about his memories of baseball. And first thing that came up was Reggie Jackson. Reggie Jackson and his home run in 1971 All-Star Game off the right field light tower. And I could play that home run in my mind, and he and I bonded over that home run. But you know what? 10-year-olds, 15-year-olds, 20-year-olds, they're not watching Shohei Ohtani. They're not watching. They're, they're, why, would they know about Reggie Jackson? No, I don't really expect them to know Reggie Jackson. But they the, ought to know the, Mookie Betts. The straw that stirred the drink. How could they not be paying attention to uh, Shohei Otani? It's just a it's generational not player. It's relevant to them. They haven't heard about it. It's not in front of them. It doesn't matter. Now, at my conference, one of our great researchers, a guy named Sherman Jenkins, who's written a book on Ted Strong, a guy who many people think belong in the Hall of Fame, that I guarantee you none of you have heard of. He had his 13- and 14-year-old grandchildren at the conference, and his grandson had helped him do recent research. He did a talk on Jackie Robinson and Malcolm X. That's where we need to go. But he's got it. Most people don't have that involvement. How do we get these young people to pay attention? We have to, they have to see people of color in front of their eyes, people that they admire, and that's what they're not doing in Major League Baseball, in the Baseball Hall of Fame, in our culture. Instead, what do we have happening? We have a governor of Florida who wants to teach students that black people benefited from slavery. This is where, what kind of change they are we getting? They marketable skills by being slaves. Yes. That's, that's the change that certain people in this society want to promote. We have to push back. So, what is someone who's not Duke Goldman, what is someone who doesn't get to vote for the Hall of Fame, what do they do? What do we do? Send letters to the Hall of Fame, send letters to Major League Baseball, tweet and and go on Instagram and say, you know, represent black people in the hall. Do social justice. And maybe I'll I'll cancel my my membership if you don't do more to promote black baseball. Yes. Duke, when you're at, were you at the Hall of Fame? Have you been to the Hall of Fame recently? Um, maybe a year ago. I mean, I've been there like 15 times. Is there a change in what one experiences going into the hall? Because I do recall, I haven't been there for many years now, but I recall being in the hall thinking, this is a really white place. So they're, they're making change, right? Over time, they changed the museum from a museum of baseball to a museum of history through the lens of baseball. And they created a black baseball exhibit. And now, this coming year, they are redoing the entire uh, exhibit to improve it, to to correct mistakes, and also to infuse black baseball in all parts of the museum. Great. 
And with that, they should also announce that they are going to revisit their veterans committees and now um, have at least one black player inducted into the Hall of Fame for the next 10 years if they really want to put their money where their mouth is. And are you talking talking about people overlooked who played in the Negro Leagues? Yes, people who are overlooked who played in the Negro Leagues. There are at least 30 or 40 who merit serious consideration. I think you need to go back to one topic you've talked to us before about, Duke, and that is how to involve more black kids in baseball because you've pointed out the loss of, 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 of black players and the very low percentage of black players in Major League Baseball, and you're not going to get black players in Major League Baseball unless you start with kids playing baseball and loving the game and being involved in their local teams the way, well, frankly, we were. And, Bill, I, I want to piggyback on your question. Is there an obligation on the Mookie Best, the really good African-American players that are more prominent, to participate in making it more of what black kids do uh, when they're children? Well, I want to say I don't know what Mookie Betts is doing. He may be very involved in initiatives in in L.A., but the answer to that, absolutely yes. They should be doing something. They should be speaking out. They should be putting pressure, whether it's through their Players Association or directly or publicly. They should use their platforms, as other athletes have done, and say, this is not enough. Major League Baseball has to go beyond a few initiatives. They have to spend a lot of money and create programs that get young black people playing baseball. If they don't do that, they're never going to have fans in 15, 20 years. Where's the Colin Kaepernick of baseball? That's kind of the question, right? Mm. Yes. I don't know where they are. And it remains to be seen if somebody will show up. Where have you gone, Jackie Robinson? Fortunately, we have Duke Goldman who comes monthly and talks about fair play and comes monthly and talks about inside baseball. And uh, you are a treasure to this region, but to the sport and justice world in general. Thank you, Duke. Thank you. We're going to be right back. We're going to remember Al Giordano, who himself was a giant in this region. Wesley Blix, good friend, good associate. We'll be talking about Al Giordano right after this. I can almost see the people with some imagination I drove through the south side after dark For a view of the roof of Comiskey Park The guy next to me thought he caught me looking at his name So he punched me You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler Police are investigating following a multi-vehicle crash in I-91 South near the Springfield and Longmeadow town line yesterday. Massachusetts State Police say a Dodge Ram driven by a 53-year-old man from Winstead, Connecticut, was traveling on the exit one off-ramp in Longmeadow when it went over the guardrail and crashed down into a wooded area below, trapping the driver inside the vehicle. A Chevy Impala driven by a 68-year-old man from Granby and a BMW driven by a 74-year-old man from Glastonbury, Connecticut, were also involved in the crash. Erica Faginski-Stark, who withdrew her application for superintendent of East Hampton Schools earlier this year due to allegations of transphobic comments on social media, is speaking out. Faginski-Stark spoke with Mass Live, saying she didn't expect comments she made two years ago on Facebook would affect contract negotiations. Faginski-Stark denies the comments were transphobic in any way, saying the criticism didn't really focus on what her words or intentions relative to the posts were. Faginski-Stark also lost out on a position at Hampshire Regional after student protests. 
More relief is coming for farmers. State and federal government officials were in Western Mass again yesterday to continue discussions on recovery efforts for all of the recent flooding in the area. Senate President Karen Spilka visited Hatfield along with local officials to announce flood assistance for farmers regarding the recent flooding that has been happening. The town has been immensely affected by this month's rainy weather and saw another inch and a half of rain over the weekend. They say the Senate will assist by adding $20 million to the supplemental budget to be dispersed to farms impacted by the storm. This assistance will be approved later this week. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5 and 1400. Join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. WHMP. The last place any of us wants to end up is the auto body shop. But if you ever do, the people to turn to are the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. At Fort Hill, you can leave your concerns at the door. They'll work with your insurance company and return your vehicle back to you in perfect condition. Guaranteed. Look, you love your car. Fort Hill Collision Services will love it too. So for the European touch for your foreign or domestic vehicle, trust the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9 in Amherst. When two blockbuster movies are scheduled to premiere the same weekend, it can generate a lot of excitement among movie fans. Scammers are also quick to jump on the bandwagon. The latest Consumer Affairs Trend Micro Threat Alert found there are plenty of schemes around the movies Barbie and Oppenheimer. When it comes to quality and reliability, which of the big three wireless providers is doing the best job? According to the J.D. Power 2023 U.S. Wireless Network Quality Performance Study, Verizon came out on top with fewer reported calling and network quality problems than other carriers. Toyota is recalling 110,000 2023 models to address an airbag issue. An electrical connection inside the steering column's spiral cable assembly may be insufficiently welded, causing the connection to break and deactivate the driver's airbag. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. And welcome back to the show. A couple of weeks ago, um, we lost someone who so many of us know had such an important influence uh, in this region and other regions. Um, it was Al Giordano who died um, in um, Mexico this month. He was a journalist. He was an organizer. He was an activist. Uh, he worked for so many causes that so many of us believe in, um, from uh, the nuclear power plant in New Hampshire that was planned, the Seabrook uh, movement, to so many um, important social justice-related issues. Yeah, and his writing while we're on nukes, and, and because Seabrook was built, but the twin proposed twin nukes at Montague weren't. That's, That's right. right. And so here to talk to help us remember Al Giordano is a colleague of his, also a journalist, also an organizer and an activist, Wesley Blix, longtime journalist and researcher. Hello, Wesley. Hello, Buzz, and thank you. Hello, Bill. 
We're so glad that you're here. Uh, help us remember Al. Al first came into my uh, life in, in about 1982 as a 22-year-old young guy, uh, um, Greenfield political pundit and gadfly, um, Charles F. McCarthy brought him into my office, 22-year-old kid, and said, you know, I have a couple of uh, bomb throwers here who I really think would uh, enjoy each other. Now, those were back in the days when you could actually joke about being bomb throwers and journalists could claim to be bomb throwers. And you were at the time, you were a reporter for the Union News. I right? was a reporter for the Union News. and uh, Which, for those who don't remember, is now the Republican, the Union News and the Republican, both published by the same uh, it was Newhouse News at the time? Yes, it was. And it, is, it is, still is. Well, Advanced Publications, which is Newhouse News, yes. Anyway, it's, so there was a morning paper, The Republican, and there was an afternoon right. paper at the time, The Union News. And I was in the Greenfield Bureau where I spent most of my time, and I spent most of that time with Al Giordano, actually, from then on. Um, I tried to make a list of the struggles in which Al was a, a, a pivotal figure, and I, I actually could not do it in the half hour I, I gave myself to do it. It, it was uh, were far too. He was a real zealot. He really was a true zealot in that he placed himself in the middle of so many struggles. Actually, appropriated so many struggles, but in a good way, a way that w was filled with humor, a way that assumed leadership, a way that assumed responsibility, and a way that 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 that, that I always greatly admired. And something I think that's often lost in the, in the um, discussion is that he was also a great deal of fun. He was um, a, a, a great mimic. He, he took his humor directly, not from, but along with Abby Hoffman, with whom he was very, very close. Um, they both had a guerrilla theater approach to struggle that was absolutely uh, uh, captivating. It was impossible to turn away from. And it was, uh, I, I remember in, at UMass in 1986 when uh, Abby Hoffman and Amy Carter and a bunch of people took over, tried to take over Whitman, uh, Whitmore Hall. They wound up taking over Munson Hall instead. But anyway, um, uh, I had met Abby a couple times, but I reintroduced myself, and I said, you know, I'm a friend of, of uh, Al Giordano's. And he looked at me, and he said, you know, Al Giordano, he don't lose for nothing. <laughs> well, Al Giordano, I first uh, read Al Giordano. He was with the Phoenix. Do you remember the Phoenix in Boston? I do remember the Phoenix, and I remember his work there, which is really where he started his narco news uh, the right. Roots what was of narco, narco News? Narco News was was a, a direct uh, confrontation with and challenge to the U.S. war on drugs, an attempt to show how corrupt it was, how ineffective it was, and how absolutely uh, um, um, beyond the pale it was. Uh, it led him to several major court cases. It led him to a lot of of um, physical danger, and it led him, oddly enough, which I've, I've always amazed, to a friendship with Marcos, with, with uh, Subcomandante Marcos, who was the head of, who was the commander, the Subcomandante of the Zapatista National Liberation Front, uh, traveled with Marcos in the jungles of, of, uh, Mexico, of, 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 of Mexico. Of Mexico. Yeah, yeah. Um, so t 
I'd like to hear more about sitting next to Al, um, what it was like to work with him day to day, what it's like to go in and to work and think, well, here's the first person I'm going to see or nearly the first person I'm going to see, and what will today bring? What did that feel like? What did that friendship feel like? It was a joy, it was a, and, and it was a constant challenge. He was, um, he was a complex person, and it was a little hard to keep up with him sometimes. He was so funny. He was so entertaining that it was a little hard on occasion to keep up with him and to match his banter with, with, uh, uh, with your own. And he wasn't always, it didn't, it didn't always make him beloved among all his friends that he would occasionally um, um, be kind of absurbic. Yeah, this is the word I was going to use. Uh, he could be. But he was also he was also well loved and and well loved and enormously respected. So tell us more about his skill as a reporter and a writer. His skill as a reporter and a writer is still a mystery to me, Bill. In some respects, because he would not only appropriate movements and struggles, he would appropriate stories. <laughs> and when you say appropriate, I mean you're using would, that in a positive way. It's making it part of himself. Yes, he would make it part of himself, not always using his own original information. So a lot of times uh, those of us at the Union News and Sunday Republican would be working on a story and we would find our research in an, in an Al Giordano story written in a far more um, uh, interesting and pl- and um, funny way than we could possibly have been allowed to do it in our work uh, as reporters. But he would, he, he would pick up on a story that was already underway and, and make it his own, which was kind of a pain in the, the butt. To tell yeah, you I, I'd like to know a bit more about that and how he injected himself, because what Al Giordano did that was unusual for journalists when he began doing was putting himself in the story. The first person was there in a way that was antithetical to the way journalism, I think, was taught for many, many years. Third person, objective, you stay out of it. You're not supposed to be in the story. You, the reporter. He, didn't, he did not subscribe to that. And that's, that's why he wound up at places like the Gazette and the, and the Phoenix. I, as a matter of fact, gave him, arranged for his first job in journalism. Katie, uh, Kitty Axelson, um, uh, the editor of the Valley Advocate called me one day and asked and offered me a job, and I said, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't possibly, you know, I'm, I'm well established at the at the Springfield Papers. I said, what about Al Giordano? And she said, Al Giordano isn't a reporter. And I said, oh yeah. <laughs> I said, look at look at what look at the stuff he writes. Look at how pointed it is. Look at how. It, very much in keeping it is with your newspaper. I said, I, I would f- absolutely recommend Al Giordano to be, a, uh, uh, to be hired as a, as a reporter for the Valley Advocate. And the word, the word that's often used to describe him is authentic, which is, it's no irony that the board of directors of the Fund for Authentic Journalism wrote uh, a reflection on Al. And I just want to read a part of it. Al lived life hard and fast. That's how life came at him. But every moment of it mattered to Al, as did winning the good fight. He literally changed his world with his organizing and his journalism work. The list of his achievements is great. It's long. His impressive legacy only now launched on a journey of its own. But even Al couldn't outrun the grim reaper. None of us can. 
But damn, he gave life one hell of a good ride. Wesley, and, and that directly from 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 Doug Wilson, one of the one of the writers of of that particular uh, piece, who was the first person, incidentally, who met Al Giordano in Western Massachusetts as a sixteen year old when Al came up here to the Universal Unitarian uh, Conference Center at Rowe that uh, Doug, Doug Wilson um, directed. But what does that mean? He gave life one hell of a good ride. He gave, he gave life the kind of ride that every journalist wishes he or she could give. Um, he um, formed personal relationships that were, that were enduring, that were um, the kind of personal relationships that we all wish we could have. Um, not always happy. Most of the time, happy. Uh, we forget too his work as a, as an organizer. He did, he worked with uh, Bill, former representative uh, Bill Benson and Chris Hodgins and J.J. White, uh, uh, progressive fundraiser as a, as a political consultant on the Hill. Two of the first people this is, and this is interesting. I think two the first people that I called when I learned that Al had died were um, that I talked to after when I learned that Al had died were former Senate. Uh, um, President Stan Rosenberg, and Bill McGee, who was the uh, PR director for the Yankee Atomic Nuclear Power Plant, the first nuclear power plant that Al helped to bring down. And he had nothing but good things to say about Al. Of course, if Al had known that I'd called Bill McGee to say that he died, he probably would have turned over in his grave. But... uh, uh, we're going to continue our conversation with Wesley Blix, journalist, author, organizer, activist, and also close friend and colleague with Al Giordano, who just passed away this month. When we come back, I want to ask Wesley, today, is there room for Al Giordano in today's journalism? We'll be right back with Wesley Blix right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Go out to eat, save 30%. Get a guitar or take lessons, save 30%. Pork chops, rug cleaning, hypnotherapy, save 30%. The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were going to buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, open right now at whmp.com. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Ah, summer in New England, and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries, basil, and tomatoes, an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats, sausage, lots of grilling ideas. And in the co-op cheese department, get fresh mozzarella for your caprese salad. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. 
You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. The Literacy Project is the place to go if you are an adult looking to improve your reading, writing, and math skills or if you want help preparing for the high school equivalency exam and preparing for college. To find out about our free classes in Franklin and Hampshire counties, check us out online at literacyproject.org or call us in Northampton at 413-584-6755. If you want to learn, the Literacy Project is the place for you. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. His passions were. We are back with Wesley Blix. We are remembering um, Al Giordano with great fondness and respect. And during the break, um, Bill and I were talking to Wesley, and we're we're talking about um, currency. That is, is there room for Al Giordano's? Do we need Al Giordano's now? in the climate that we're living in now. Bill, you were reflecting on the Valley Advocate and Al's work. Yeah, well, the Valley Advocate isn't even a shadow of its former self. But 20 years ago, uh, 30 years ago, the Valley Advocate was a really important journalistic uh, uh, force here in the Valley. Uh, And Al Giordano was a real force here in the Valley. And I wonder whether that Hunter Thompson kind of gonzo journalism is gone. It's absolutely gone. It's tragically gone. I think the type of America, the type of democracy that 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 Al envisioned is gone. And I think he would be. I think that's one reason he was in Mexico and he was not in the United States. He was in Mexico, where things were far more fluid and far more exciting and far more there was far more potential for his voice to be heard. Uh, I don't think it's, it's, it's here in the United States. I think that the, the influence that Abby Hoffman had on Al is, is underestimated. He was devastated when Abby died in 1989. Uh, but he had taught Al, and, and Al had taught him in some ways, much of what they, had, what they both knew about democracy and about the role of journalism in democracy, certainly more than Hunter S. Thompson. Uh, and Al's heroes, his his sensibility came not even so much from journalism, but from poetry, which is so interesting. He and I served as his mentor in some ways, in in regard to his um, fascination with the beats. Yeah, Neil Cassidy yeah. was more of a, a mentor. Was more of a, a model. For Al Giordano, did Al have to, did Al have uh, journalistic heroes that he tr- wanted to emulate, or no? Not that he talked about. N- n- not a lot. I mean, the things that he talked about with me, and I can only talk about w- what he talked about with me, and my relationship with him went far beyond journalism. Um, had more to do with um, beat poetry, The Grateful Dead, and and the future and 
and legacy of psychedelic drugs of Gordon Wasson and, and Maria Sabina and, and, and uh, uh, the, the, the fathers, fathers and grandmothers of psychedelic research. Those were the things that, that drove him. Those were the things that um, animated him. Um, when he went to Jack Kerouac's dedication, the, Jack, the dedication of the Jack Kerouac Museum in, in uh, Lowell Lawrence, he brought me back. He was such a generous soul. He really was an incredible generous soul. He brought me back this huge volume signed by all the remaining Beat fathers and mothers. Uh, uh, I'm wondering if you could t talk a bit more about that personal relationship the news report in the Daily Hampshire Gazette, I think it was the same one that was in the Greenfield Recorder, uh, reported that Al died of cancer. Yes. And uh, it certainly implied he had been ill for quite some time. And I'm wondering whether you had communication with him uh, while he was going down that road, having that journey, and uh, whether he shared with you any thoughts with regard to what was the potential for an impending death? He, he, he did, and he rejected death. He rejected death defiantly. Uh, he did have a whole group of friends who helped him enormously when he came back to Greenfield, uh, Greenfield to Northampton for chemotherapy in, what was it, 2018, 2017, 2018. Um, um, and I was in the hospital at that time, and so I didn't have a lot of, of, of conversation with him at that time, but his orientation with psychedelic drugs did, I think, give him a great, um, some solace in the f uh, face of that defiance against death. Um, I'm not sure that, the, that the, I don't know the facts of his, his death. I know that it was said to be lung cancer. He did have mouth cancer back in the late teens that uh, was very, very serious and underwent uh, chemotherapy and was here in Northampton. Uh, the death of his very, very close friend, Susie Pellucci, I know, had a huge impact on him at that time. Do you think his influence lives on in journalism in the Valley in some way here that we can identify and point to and say, yeah, that person's in the in the in the in, in that tradition of Not that I've seen, Bill. Not that I've seen. And I'm sorry to say that. I, I hope that um, isn't overly pessimistic. But I, and I hope that I'm missing somebody. That I, I hope there, there is some germ of, of Al Giordano out there that's growing and developing. And, and, well, just uh, really, you know, if, we have some wonderful journalists who are aggressively seeking the truth and trying to report it. What's different in the minute that we have left? What's different about the Al Giordanos and those well-meaning, hard-working journalists? The outlets. I mean, the only outlet that people have really is 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 the our, our websites. There are no there are no newspapers. I mean, the Greenfield Recorder and the Daily Hampshire Gazette and the and Mass Live and the Republican and the Advocate are all. Are, are all woefully inadequate. Um, yeah, well, they're also people. dealing, they're also living on a staff that's what a, a fraction of what it used to be, a fraction of the number of reporters that there once were. Right. 
I mean, I found myself as a farm and food reporter for the for the Greenfield Recorder being unable to really experiment with language and, and or, orientation and outlook. So that's devilish. Well, I, I wish we didn't have to leave it on that sour note. But uh, in fact, Al Giordano was a giant uh, in local journalism, and he was uh, just a, a very important voice um, in speaking truth to power in this region. Could I just say... Al Giordano, presente! Presente, Al's here. Thank you for joining us on Talk to Talk. Dear Massachusetts, marijuana is now legal for adult use. Keep your kids and pets safe by keeping all cannabis products in child-resistant packaging. Store your cannabis in a lockbox out of sight and out of reach from your children and teach them that cannabis and alcohol are for adults only and that prescription medications are only meant for the person they are prescribed for. Brought to you by the Northampton Prevention Coalition, working together to protect the developing brain. NorthamptonPrevents.org The Food Bank of Western Massachusetts provides healthy food to families and individuals facing hunger in our region. And right now, with food insecurity the highest it's been in recent years, the Food Bank is distributing more emergency food than ever. Learn more about the Food Bank or get support for yourself and your family. Go to foodbankwma.org or call 413-247-9738. The Food Bank of Western Mass, committed to making sure our neighbors have enough to eat and leading the community to 